and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Hello and welcome to a podcast of the Hoover Institution. We're talking today about presidential politics and the two conventions. I'm Bill Whalen, a research fellow at Hoover, joined today by Dr. Doug Rivers, political scientist extraordinaire, chief scientist at YouGov, and I'm also joined by Dr. David Brady, Hoover Institution senior fellow, also esteemed political scientist, and on the short list to be the next chairman of the Democratic National Committee. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe not. (laughs) So, fellas the halfway point in the two weeks of convention hell in the United States of America. The Republicans have somehow survived Cleveland. We will see if the Democrats somehow survive Philadelphia. And guess what? For all the trouble, all the controversy, all the ups and downs of Cleveland, it looks like Donald Trump walked away with a bounce. Surprising, given the events that happened in Cleveland. Uh, But we've been running a number of surveys where uh, we're recontacting people that we talked to before. So it's not just a bounce and one survey is giving a different answer than another. It's uh, when we talk to the same people, we're seeing a little bit of movement. Not a huge amount, um, but there were uh, two surveys YouGov did over the weekend uh, that were recontacts. One was um, for CBS in the battleground states, uh, which showed uh, a two-point movement towards Trump, uh, coming almost entirely from voters who previously had said they were would not vote or would have voted for a third-party candidate. We also have hot off the press our nationwide recontact, which is the 11th wave um, in interviews of people who were first uh, contacted in May of um, 2015. Um, We've been watching these people and talking to them about once a month. Um, And uh, what we saw was that the Trump supporters basically stayed in place. He didn't really... Uh, lose much there, and he picked up a little bit from undecided. Um, But the big change was Hillary Clinton went down. Uh, It wasn't Trump gaining support. It was uh, people going from saying they were going to support Hillary Clinton to saying they were not sure. My interpretation of this would be uh, we should just settle down and wait to the end of the Democratic Convention. They got a week of unrelenting indictments of Hillary Clinton, people wanting to Uh, lock her up, um, and uh, we're going to see a week of people loving Hillary Clinton and hating Donald Trump. Uh, So let's wait for those things to uh, equilibrate. Yeah, uh, the the average uh, bump for a Republican candidate, uh, those bumps, it's just the basic calculation, which I have some doubts about, has been about 4.5. So I don't, I don't take this to be a I don't take this to be a really big bump. Uh, the two points in the um, uh, in the poll with uh, CBS uh, on the on the battleground states that that didn't seem to me much. And secondly, she's still leading. Uh, if you look at the numbers, what is she? What is she leading by, Doug? Two points, three. Um, we currently have her up by three in our national poll. Um, and the battleground, though, did flip from plus yeah. one for Clinton to plus, plus one, one for, for Trump. Wow. That's not statistically significant, uh, but it's not good news. Uh, I think the Democrats watching the convention where, uh, you know, you had plagiarism on the first night. You had Ted Cruz not endorsing Trump. Um, you had Trump giving this unrelentingly negative acceptance speech. 
uh, and uh, they would have hoped for no bounce or even a negative bounce. And uh, it looks like he's getting a little something. Uh, that that is, we have a real race going. It's not uh, at least where the polls are today. It doesn't look like it's going to be a walk. So, Bill, you should not just be the interrogator here. The question I have is, it does look like what Doug said does does look like there's a race, which is. Is sort of surprising, given that for some long time, most commentators have thought in the long run Trump would lose, not just the nomination, but certainly uh, would lose the election. So, so there's a very snarky. On this? It's a very snarky way to describe this election, yeah. and that is that the Republicans have managed to field the one candidate who cannot beat Hillary Clinton, and the Democrats have fielded the one candidate who perhaps cannot beat Donald Trump, which seems to be the trouble. So, the last time the Democrats were in Philadelphia was 1948. And my apologies last week, Dave, for suggesting that you were in Cleveland in 1924. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're in Philly in 1948 either. It was not. Uh, it's it possible. It's possible. You never know. It could have been. could have been. The um, Indians won the World Series that year. Though. That's right. There was a reason why the parties did not go to Philadelphia for 52 years. And that was because in 1948, there was no air conditioning in Philadelphia. Both parties were in Philly that year for one reason, television the television cable that ran across the East Coast, up and down the East Coast. Philly was the midway point of it, and Philly was a good place to be. They did not have, they did not have air conditioning in the convention hall. They, the city council, the city fathers were too cheap to spend $30,000 in air conditioning. People dropped like flies at the convention, and both parties said not again. So <laughs> a 52-year hiatus. In 1948, when the Republicans were there, they came up with a ticket of Tom Dewey and Earl Warren called it the Hands Across America ticket, and the running mate was a very safe choice, a very safe governor. And lo and behold, in 2016, Hillary Clinton has come up with what is seen as a very safe governor. Now, we're going to make Dave Brady very mad here and get into the world of political science, but we have looked at numbers of Hillary's shortlist of vice presidents. Doug, what did we see? So, uh, we tried, uh, I guess it was 10 different uh, uh, vice presidential alternatives, and we asked people to rate them on a favorability scale. Um, the first thing you note is that by far the best known of these candidates was Elizabeth Warren. Uh, over 80% of the people in our sample uh, could rate her, whereas um, most of the other candidates were 50% or less. Uh, Warren was the candidate with the highest favorables coming overwhelmingly from the Democratic base, but also the highest unfavorables. And I think that tells you why she wasn't uh, Hillary Clinton's choice. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is a vice president can only hurt you, uh, and Elizabeth Warren would have turned off some voters uh, while she would have energized the base. Um, Cory Booker uh, was a candidate who uh, was the second most rateable candidate. Uh, Dave Brady's former student at Stanford. Um, he had uh, not a, a great balance of favorables and unfavorables, were about even, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't think would have uh, really helped. It would have been uh, helpful with, obviously, the Democratic base, but that's not where I think Hillary sees this um, election is going to be won. Uh, Tim Kaine uh, was... Uh, you know, kind of mixed, uh, had 10% uh, unfavorable, 7% favorables, uh, but 40% couldn't rate them at all. Right. Um, we did a more in-depth analysis using a thing called uh, a maximum differences scaling, and actually Kane came out 
slightly the best choice in terms of um, maximizing the vote for Clinton. Whether that was a part of their calculation, I have no idea. Hmm. I, I would say, however, we should be a little careful in interpreting these kinds of data. It shows you the kind of caution that you need to have on survey data. Uh, one of the uh, potential candidates was uh, Julian Castro, another uh, Stanford graduate who is also a David Brady student. Clearly, uh, clearly these were disqualified. They were just in my class, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, Joe Parker's the Clinton campaign. But the, the interesting thing is that uh, Castro was the third most recognizable candidate of all of these. And my suspicion is that most people had no idea who he was, and a few people guessed that he must have been a cousin of Fidel Castro. Or if not Fidel. <laughs> <laughs> or a Brady student, yeah. who knows. Well, I mean, that's the, it's true, the polls, and I, I think Doug's point about, uh, I, I think we really have to wait till after the Democratic Convention. And uh, I, I think in addition to that, we'll know some, but then after Labor Day, it's, I think it's really after Labor Day when uh, everybody right. is back and students are back in school, well, not so many people Well, the Olympics are going to just distract everyone from this campaign for a few weeks. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, there's going to be a surge of patriotic outpouring and people are going to take a vacation from this. Uh, so I, I don't think even the polls immediately after the Democratic Convention should be taken too seriously. I agree. Right. So one thing which stands out about Philadelphia to me is you're going to see night after night of very good speakers. You're going to see Bernie Sanders lead off. You're going to see Bill Clinton speak on Tuesday. Michelle Obama is going to speak. Wednesday is heavy hitters. It's President Obama and Vice President Biden. Then she speaks on Thursday. This is steak compared to the relative dog food that you got in Cleveland from its speaking lineup. But on the other hand, this is also the political class talking to you in America. Oh, I'm curious as to how the Democrats are going to balance this out for four days. On the one hand, you have to acknowledge that there is a discomfort going on in society. YouGov economist polls put the wrong track. I think about 22% right now think we're on the right track, and that's down from about 29. Gallup asks a variation of that, which is, uh, are you satisfied, I think is the way they ask it. Yeah. And that's, I think it's 17%, which is down yeah. about 12 points in the last month. So you have to acknowledge that people are not thrilled with the way things are going, but at least until the president says his piece, you can't you can't lay at his feet. So, how do you wed these two? How how do you how do you talk about things that aren't going right in America, but not take responsibility for it? Well, I, first of all, there it's a disaffected electorate. It's not just the statistics you mentioned. Number of people who think that the government is run for uh, for the majority of people that's down to about ten percent. People are disaffected, and uh, in the primaries we had candidates. That were not not uh, not establishment candidates. In the case of the Democratic Party, the Democratic establishment candidate won, and Sanders lost. In the Republican Party, the anti-establishment candidate won, and we saw what that convention looked like. And for those of us who've looked at those things, looking for the nice uh, media managed event, did didn't happen. And the results show that the people didn't seem to care too much about that. Uh, it didn't hurt Trump. Now we're going to get on the Democratic side, you're going to get the traditional time for television, everything moving quite swiftly. And I'm more interested in the after the Democratic Party convention numbers to see how much that disaffection, and we can measure who's disaffected and how they thought of these things. So it's going to be interesting because you've got a real contrast, both in, not in terms of the primaries and who, got, who won and what the conventions are going to look like. Right. 
Yeah, the Republican convention essentially had none of the Republican elected officials, only the small handful that had come out for Trump. Uh, it had the Trump children. It had uh, Scott Bio. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, uh, we have a perfect test here of putting no politicians on the program may have been the right thing this year. Uh, you know, probably an inadvertent act of genius, but, uh, uh, you know, the Democrats are going to pull out uh, a slickly produced uh, thing with a unified party. Uh, I think, I, I don't think the email thing is actually going to disturb things much. Uh, it's going to have a set of elected officials coming out there and not hedging at all in their support for Hillary Clinton. Right. Uh, and that may not be what she needs. Well, it's worth noting in 1992, the first of the, of the many Clinton convention scenes, but in 1992, they gathered in New York. And several things stood out about that convention. First of all, compared to previous conventions, the 1968 mess in Chicago, the, the 1972 convention in uh, Miami where George mm -hmm. McGovern gave the speech of his life at 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a slick, orchestrated, well-run on-message convention. Bill Clinton, a very youthful, positive image. They did very smart things. They swam in Kennedy nostalgia for several days. He remember he had the impromptu walk in from over from Macy's over to the Madison Square Garden. And the really, movie, the movie, the movie the was just Hope. the man from yeah. Hope was really. Yeah. It was just a really well yeah. done four star effort. So let's assume that she has a very well run convention because it sure sounds like it's going to be. But here's the question, guys: What is she going to talk about on Thursday night? Because we have similar. It seems to me this is very similar to John McCain and Mitt Romney in this regard both running the last campaign of their careers, both having run previously, and both coming into their final campaign, not exactly sure how they're going to connect with the public. In her case, making herself much more of a populist than, than she ever has been. Yeah, I suspect she is going to attempt to do that. Uh, I don't know whether she can do that uh, convincingly. Mm -hmm. uh, I. You know, the problem here is Hillary Clinton's got branded as a liar, as dishonest, untrustworthy, so forth. Um, and I, I think she should concentrate as essentially on how you, uh, how she can reconnect personally on a non-policy basis uh, with the public at large. Um, the uh, Donald Trump is not really a credible carrier of the populist message. He can do it, uh, you know, in terms of style. Uh, but it should be relatively easy for her surrogates to go after the billionaire, the fake populace, the Republicans who really just want to cut Donald Trump's taxes uh, and make deals for uh, the wealthy. Um, but uh, I think Hillary should not be making those uh, arguments, that she should be uh, telling the personal story, the positive story. I. I agree with that, but I think that's extremely difficult for her to do. She's not, like her husband, a talented politician. Mm -hmm. We've no known her for uh, a long time. She's been present for seemingly forever in American politics. And uh, it's going to be hard for her to do that, but uh, it would be useful. Uh, even an attempt, mm -hmm. I think, would, would be useful. Um, we'll see what she does. She may just go for the... Our party's unified, and we're on the right side of issues. But the expectations are low. Uh, they've got that going for them, and uh, <laughs> that's what and, and she's not as bad as as the reputation. I mean, she's taken some hits on the emails, um, and uh, you know, Trump has sucked the air out of the room, and he's not going to be in the room this week. So Trump has done her at least two favors. Number one, 
be more positive than he was in his speech. His speech was, what, 99% negative when you add it all up. And second, you don't have to yell into the microphone. So <laughs> let's see if she takes her voice down a few notches because she, too, suffers from the same right. ailment as him. Well, she, she has, will, in she the last, I've noticed in the last two weeks or so, she has... Uh, stop the uh, yelling in the microphone. She will. Now I'm looking to see what the blend of her speech is. I spent part of the weekend going through YouGov economist polls and I found some rather interesting things. People when asked what qualities they're looking for in a president, what leads the pack? Trustworthy. Honesty. So I'm not sure how she addresses that because you just can't stand up in front of a crowd and say trust me I'm honest. That's Nixon saying I'm not a crook. You just, you can't pull that <laughs> off. But then you look in the issue subsets and what do you see leading the pack? Security, national security, war on terror, health care is high up. That surprised me. Health care is very high up. Uh, but at the bottom of the pack, LGBTQ issues, free college tuition. So I know she has to address certain things to appeal to the base, but will she in that classic Clinton tradition be pragmatic and offer that blend that's going to play out in the Midwest? Well, I thought a good sign was picking Kane. I mean, Kane is a guy who sends a signal that uh, I'm... I didn't pick the Bernie Sanders base. She does have to. She does have to say something to them because they still have not, in the polls, totally come around to her. Although it's pretty high, I think it was like sixty seventeen or something. Mm -hmm. But they haven't fully come around. So she has to. It, it's a. It's a delicate mix for her. Yeah. The, the question for a Democrat is: To what extent you use a base strategy? Uh, you know, we have an electorate that's over thirty percent minority. Um, and so we're not back in 1968 where you have an electorate that's, you know, close to 90% uh, white. Right. Um, she, uh, there's a big gender gap this year, so she'll do well among women. Mm -hmm. So the base strategy is play the women, play the minorities. Um, and so that's what, you know, one school of thought thinks your strategy should be. Uh, the other one is reach for the middle, right. uh, try to be more positive. <laughs> Um, and uh, essentially use big data uh, and micro-targeting uh, to get your base out. Yeah, so you can argue the Kane selection underscores this. She didn't pick Cory Booker, who's African-American. Right. Then you look at the recent elections, and the African-American vote is, I think, what, about 10% of the vote, perhaps, and they're getting 90. Closer 90, to 12. 12. Well, in yeah. 2012, they'll getting, probably go down slightly. The Democrats are getting 93 to 95% of that vote, so maybe she mm -hmm. feels. And she has really gone out of her way to embrace the African-American community and really be their voice. She's done a very good job of that. She did not pick Julian Castro or um, the labor secretary uh, appealing to the Hispanic vote, but perhaps, again, she feels she's going to get that on the natural. Yes, Tim Kaine is fluent in Spanish, but she didn't make the direct appeal of actually having some of Latino blood on the ticket. She didn't play the gender card with Elizabeth Warren, but again, she feels that women are coming home. But we've talked about Trump's vulnerability being that he is only in the 80s right now with Republicans, and he needs to get at least into the 90s to, to make this thing competitive. But what's her Achilles heel right now? Her Achilles heel is that people don't trust her, uh, they don't like her, and unless you're a hardcore Democrat, uh, it appears to be an open question for a lot of people, which is uh, surprising to me given the opposition. I, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I agree with that. I, I, she's, she's not liked. Is uh, What can she do about that? I, I think, however, over the course of the campaign, what I've looked at, Trump, is doing slightly better with white, blue-collar, or white, less affluent people. If you're white, high school or less, and under $50,000, 
compared to, so what I looked at was how did Obama do in 2012 and how is uh, Hillary doing relative to that? She's down among white, less affluent voters, but she's up uh, over Obama on women, which is a little surprising, not much, but she's up a couple of points. And in regard to Republicans, she's doing a little better with them than Obama did, but I haven't seen the latest result. I expect that probably went down. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, uh, I don't think she can get those white, less affluent voters back. So I think she has to go after the base. Well, I think she better. Um, you know, what we've seen is a flip. Um, so that uh, states like Pennsylvania and Michigan uh, which used to be relatively safe for Democrats, right. uh, and you could count on them, uh, are ones that are in contention. There are a fair number of electoral votes there. Uh, on the other hand, some places that, um, you know, in the past used to be better for Republicans. Uh, Colorado has moved pretty Democratic. Florida. Um, Florida, Arizona. Georgia. Um, Virginia. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, that always leaves Ohio, which is right. dead even at this point. So uh, I noticed on the uh, battleground states that uh, there was no state-by-state. State. Uh, what, what, what yeah, is so we did just a uh, pooled battleground sample. Yeah. Uh, we will be doing state-by-state state races, but uh, not decided yet. not to do it uh, okay. this week. Like the 19th century, the battle to be the first pollster to get into Nevada. <laughs> there hasn't been a poll in Nevada in ages. No, there has not. We'll be there. We'll be there. Very good. So we talk about Trump tapping into this disgruntled, white, less educated vote, but this strikes me as a little bit like the Ted Cruz argument and conservatives' arguments in past elections that you just put a true blue conservative on the ticket and this crushing wave of conservatives will come out of the caves. They've literally been hiding since the days of Barry Goldwater and my God, they're going to come out in unforeseen numbers and sweep us into office. But are there really that many hidden Trump voters out there to do the trick? Yeah, that's a good question, Bill. I, I've been trying to do some calculations on what the real size of that is. Yeah. Um, and the, the problem is it's easy, obviously, to calculate uh, from the census what the right. uh, fraction of voters is in that category. And it's a good number, but you're not going to it's not going to be like African-Americans where one party is going to get 95 percent of, of that vote. Right. Um, and so, you know, Trump is looking at getting, you know, 55, 60 percent of this vote. 60 is a really good uh, performance in that category. 55 is kind of what uh, Republicans uh, have been getting. Um, so it, it's hard to figure out what the exact requirement is. Um, the Trump operation has no good data analytics. And one of the things they should have at this point is they should know exactly what percent of that group they need to win uh, to get to a plurality. Are, are you willing to sign the mother of all NDAs? <laughs> Why? Well, uh, so the question, so the question uh, I agree with Doug, you look at that, um, what, what is the need of those people? A lot of the people who are, so if you look at Democrats, less than 50,000, less than high school, Big, not, big proportion of those are Hispanic and black. They're not, they're not coming around to Trump in any, in, any solid, in any solid numbers. And the other thing we don't know is, so if you look at the exit polls, which are reasonably accurate on who, because there you do know who turned out because it's an exit poll. Right. 
you say that in, uh, say, the question of African-American voters, 12% in 2012 of voters were African-American. I expect that'll go down a little. Mm -hmm. uh, Hispanics, I think, will go up. They were about 9% and they'll go up. Right. That's, the, that's the sort of thing we, we don't know. We do have mm -hmm. some registration numbers from states. Uh, Hispanic vote in Arizona is up. Uh, Hispanic registration is up, but we don't know about the election day yet. Yeah, the Latino vote's largely a matter of demographics, right. uh, that the percentage of Latino citizens is going up a straight line, uh, not rapidly, but you know, it means every year you're going to get a one to two point more Latinos in the electorate. Um, and uh, there's room to improve Latino turnout. Uh, Black turnout, on the other hand, is already above white turnout, and if you adjust for um, education and income, it's way above uh, white turnout. And prison population. Uh, yeah, so uh, the adjustments you have to make to turnout are uh, people who are non-citizens, and then it turns out that uh, felons, who are typically disenfranchised, also need to be subtracted out. It makes a little difference. Um, uh, but it is something when you're uh, down to very close elections uh, can matter. You throw a random question at you guys. I was going through some Roper studies uh, over the weekend looking at how people identify themselves in this country. Back in 1992 at the, the first Bill Clinton convention, 30% of the country called itself conservative, 21% called itself liberal, 49% called itself moderate. In 2000, 35% called itself conservative, 25% liberal, 41% liberal. Uh, moderate, excuse me. Are we more polarized than we were back in the day? And what's what's pushed people in these directions? It seems to me we have more people calling themselves conservative, and more people calling themselves liberal. Well, one 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 qualification you have to make to people who say they're conservative is, as Jim Stimson showed in his book, uh, about 25 percent of people who say they're conservative, when you ask them actual issue issue questions, they're sort of operationally liberal. They're the, if you look at the Trump voters that we've been talking about, there are people who, uh, so the Trump voters, who are allegedly Republican and allegedly say they're conservative, 65% of them are in favor of no tuition, and 70% of those voters were in favor of increasing taxes on people who make over 200000 So that's what I mean by the operator. So you have to be careful. The percentage of conservatives has to be cut back a little because of that. Yeah, the... Um Given the polarization we have in our politics, where we have one party now, which is an ideologically right-wing party, and another party that's a large fraction of its base is actually has a positive view of socialism, mm -hmm. uh, we have an extremely polarized politics. Uh, but the argument that's been made by our Hoover colleague, Mo Fiorina, is uh, that the electorate itself has hardly budged. Right. And if you look at the numbers that you cited, Bill, um, there is an, uh, a little bit of an increase uh, towards the extreme, but it's nowhere close to what we're seeing in our politics. Um, and so Mo's argument is um, essentially that the parties have become homogeneous, and so what we're seeing is uh, polarization between the parties much more than polarization uh, between the voters. Um, and it is remarkable on how many issues at which uh, you see the majorities in the middle. The majority is neither pro-choice nor pro-life. They are moderately pro-choice with pretty severe restrictions. Um, they are uh, not for big tax cuts uh, for the wealthy, but it turns out they're not for big tax increases either. 
Um, so across a whole range of issues, uh, people are more moderate than uh, you would guess from uh, the political debate. I agree with that. Um, the one thing that's not featured much on these talks is that it looks like it's all demand side what comes from the voters. Right. But if you think of the elites and the way the parties run things, including the primaries and the money, it may well be the case on the supply side that the only kind of candidates who can, uh, who are willing to run under these circumstances, mm -hmm. uh, are the candidates who get that kind of money. So you're you're offering voters the choice between the left and the right, and if uh, and there's very few instances when you're offering voters chances for a moderate to win. Mm -hmm. Let's assume that she has a smooth convention, despite the drama going into it. That the speeches are good. That she gives a good speech. I can't think of a nominee really in recent times who's given a bad speech. Usually they shine in the moment. They've practiced the speech. Somebody's written it. It's well delivered. They get a little jump. And let's assume that she gets a bounce. And maybe she gets the same bounce as Trump appears to be getting. Uh, but is it a bounce fella or is it what's called a dead cat bounce? In other words, will this wear off pretty fast and will they both kind of sink back down into the low 40s and on we go? I don't think you will know in a week how this election's going to turn out. Right. Um, what, I, mean, I don't want to put you guys on the spot, yeah. but it seems to me that you have one overriding dynamic here. They both have just astronomically high negatives. When you right. ask people, could they vote for Trump, 48% say, I could never vote for Trump, 46% say, I could never vote for Hillary. They don't look like two candidates who could, use a football metaphor, you know, break away. <laughs> yeah, so the question is, whose negative campaign is going to be more effective? Right. Um, so um, uh, so they both system. have huge vulnerabilities here. Uh, I have yet to see the really strong uh, Democratic attack uh, on Trump. Um, people have been nervous about him from the beginning, uh, but you've seen the attack on Clinton. Uh, we know what that looks like. We know what it involves. Uh, what hasn't happened at this point is the Democrats have really found something they could latch onto and really go after Trump with. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree with that. Okay. Final question, guys. Tell me what you're looking for in Philadelphia. I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking to see if on Thursday night when she has finally reached the summit of the mountain, she has been climbing for 25 years or longer, and she now has a nomination or a grasp, can she exhibit real joy? Can she, can she smile and come across as somebody warm and affectionate and, dare I say, likable? That sums it up for me. <laughs> Well, I think the question for her is uh, she will be the first uh, female nominee of a major party, uh, and she's running against somebody who's made many misogynist comments. Uh, can she turn that into something that at least the base of the Democratic Party comes out with and says, this is a really easy choice. I have no ambivalence at all. Uh, and I, th I think that's you know, where they're going to try to turn that into something that gets the Democratic base at least really enthusiastic. You mean as opposed to the wonderful Bernie Sanders endorsement? Well, something a little more full-throated yeah. than that. If you should see, if you should all go look to the readers, if you get a chance to look at The Onion, which is the Wisconsin Magazine satire, and it has a great thing on uh, Bernie Sanders' endorsement, which says his endorsement was, Hillary Clinton is an entirely separate person from Donald Trump. <laughs> it's really good. Very good. Well, gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. I look forward to kicking around what happened in Philadelphia once we see what goes down. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.